Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global public health. We're brought to you with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a network of academics, businesses, NGOs and community organisations all based in the Bay Area and all committed to improving health around the world. Well, this is World AIDS Day. It's a difficult day for many of us as we remember the lives lost, the new infections, but we also celebrate the increasing number of people living because of access to treatment. Over the last few months, we have met extraordinary leaders in the HIV movement who have documented their struggle. Peter Staley and his book, Never Silent. Emily Bass and her book, To End a Plague. And today, as part of our World AIDS Day remembrance, we meet Martina Clark, author of My Unexpected Life. She is an amazing woman. And in a sense, this podcast is a little different to others, as our lives our advocacy have shadowed each other. Well, to be honest, I sort of follow in her shadow. So Martina Clark, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here. No, I think the honor is mine, to be honest. <laughs> but I'm going to kick off by shamelessly plugging My Unexpected <laughs> Life by Martina Clark. It's published by Northampton Press. Why did you decide to write a book now? Oh, the book has been in me for a very long time. Um, and for whatever reasons, the universe didn't allow it to come out before um, now. And I think it was actually for the, the best that that happened um, because I was able to bookend it with COVID. And in the end, it is a much better book. And I was able to weave throughout the similarities and the differences of the COVID and the HIV pandemics. And um, without too many spoiler alerts, I have experienced some of the similarities myself, uh, even just living in the epicenter of the AIDS pandemic in the early 80s um, in San Francisco, and then in Brooklyn, New York, in the early 2020 um, of COVID. And experiencing those two things and all of the memories and the sensory memories that I didn't even realize were still there, um, it brought a lot up. And so being able to put those three throughout the book, I think, made it a much better memoir and the lessons learned and also as you said, even with World AIDS Day, that um, you know, it's a very sad and somber day. But at the same time, we learned so much from the AIDS pandemic that we've built on um, that we're actually benefiting from in the COVID pandemic. So I really hope to explore yeah. that with you in this conversation, um, and particularly the COVID stuff. But but first of all, um, let's start with you in Sudan uh, sometime in the <laughs> early 21st century. You are providing HIV education and awareness to UN peacekeepers. How the hell does that happen? And <laughs> what do you say to them? So I, I think you're referring to what is now South Sudan. And that is a slight frustration to me because I can't count it as another country that I visited because technically it was still part of Sudan. That's a whole other story. 
Um, but I was working for UNICEF at the time, I believe. And um, I have worked with the peacekeepers off and on in various incarnations of my career. Um, but at that particular moment, I was working with uh, the UN peacekeeping uh, HIV chief to assist with the uh, training. And basically, they, the way that it works in peacekeeping is they are constantly doing HIV awareness trainings and they are also doing trainings of trainers because the troops rotate through every six months. So it's an ongoing, constant wheel of training, if you will, that never ends. Um, and you train them like anybody else, except that when a Martina Clark, a blue-eyed blonde with breasts shows up and it's a thousand degrees outside and they're bored and they've heard these trainings and they're suddenly me they're like oh hello <laughs> and, um, and they pay attention in a way that I'm not sure they're really listening to the training but uh, but they they do pay attention <laughs> and yeah. um, they'll never forget you they'll never forget me and uh, and the thing that I remember from that training is that they all wanted to take their picture with me which I was not really sure I wanted them to have my picture but uh, in any case um, it's important to do those trainings and I was glad to help um, and the idea is that even though they still work for their governments. While they are peacekeepers, they are under the umbrella of the United Nations, and it is our responsibility to make sure that they have the information to protect themselves, and equally important, maybe more important, um, but equally important, that they protect the people that they are there to protect um, and don't spread or um, contract HIV uh, while they are in, under the service of the United Nations. Well, we'll come back to some of the uh, UN decisions that, that, that led to that demand of peacekeepers being trained. But, but how did you get there? Could you talk about your journey in the 80s and 90s that led you to the UN? And, and I'm thinking particularly about what it was like, how shall I put this, to get your diagnosis in the Bay Area. Um, because in a sense, San Francisco, the epicenter of the epidemic, should have been really geared up to help people get their HIV results. Um, but I guess for a young woman, a young white woman, this would have been something that was not so common. So how did that experience play out for you? Uh, so I was diagnosed in 1992. And as you say, in theory... Um, it was an epicenter along with New York City and a few other major urban centers. But um, to my surprise, uh, and probably everybody who reads the book, it was not really uh, set up for women with di being diagnosed with HIV. And I know a lot of other women diagnosed in that time frame would have had the same or similar experience. But my doctor tested me because he didn't know what else to do. 
And he actually said, you know, you're a woman and you're not married, so let's do an HIV test, which was loaded with judgment. Um, and then he gave me the results over the phone, which was, you know, sort of uh, not to do 101, <laughs> basically, definitely not how you're supposed to deliver those results. But um, there, nothing was really set up. And there were some support groups, to be sure, but it was not um, particularly well organized for women with HIV. There are millions of things set up for gay men, which was fabulous. And they had been set up by gay men for gay men because they were so hard hit. And so it was necessarily so set up in their service, which is great. But um, there was definitely a void. And so I was very fortunate that I early on met, first of all, a woman named Penny Chernow, who put me in touch with um, a woman named Rebecca Dennison, who is to this day one of my heroes. And <laughs> she's amazing. And um, she started an organization called World, Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Disease. And I ended up working with her in her living room where everything started. And she very quickly saw that I was interested in international work. And I'd actually studied international relations. So she sort of pushed me towards going to an international conference where I fell into, in, in Mexico, I fell into a conference of um, the Global Network of People Living with HIV and the international community of women living with HIV, and there were activists and ACT UP, and they took Mike Merson, who was then the head of the World Health Organization's global program on HIV, so the medical arm of the UN. Um, they actually took him hostage, <laughs> wouldn't let him leave until he agreed to certain requirements. And I, it was both amazing, extraordinary, and completely frightening. Um, but I was just like enthralled by this whole thing. And um, I went there not really having any idea what I was getting into, but wanting to do something. And I left uh, as a board member of the Global Network of People Living with HIV because I sort of felt like I, I thought I had a role that I could play. And I also saw that all of these other activists were exhausted and um, there was room for somebody to step in and not take anybody's place by any means. But there was so much work to be done that another person to step up could be, could be helpful. Two things strike me about that, Martina. One is that I, I think the great gift that GNP has given us over these last decades is that it has connected activists from around the world, activists who, frankly may be the only voice uh, of open voice living with HIV in their community, in their country. An experience that's very different from organizations in the uh, industrialized world, particularly at that time. But the second thing um, uh, is about um, looking at the response to AIDS through a the lens of women and um, Thus, the global network of people with HIV, this GNP, this group that was there for people 
living with um, HIV and giving them real meaning uh, and contribution. I'll come back to that in a second. But there was also the International Community of Women Living with HIV, ICW. And why has it been that although HIV is essentially, is largely an epidemic of women, girls and women, we still don't think of it that way. We still don't really do as much research uh, thinking about the impacts on girls and women. Why do you think that is? Ooh. Uh, so this is a seven-hour show, right? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, um, I think that there, you know, the, the very quick answer is that there's still gender inequity in the world. That's, that's the bottom line, is that it, not just with HIV, but with so many things, there is still not equity among how we look at women for so many, many, many things. Um, and this is probably going to, I'm going to say something that is maybe going to have to be edited out. I don't know. You can decide. But I... I believe that early on, a lot of the noise being made around the, the pandemic, the epidemic, um, was necessarily so, certainly in industrialized countries, was rallied by gay men because they were being so hard hit. They were organized, they were mobilized, they had money, they had means to get people's attention. They did a fantastic job and it was great and they made a difference and they saved lives. They changed the course of health forever for everyone. But that also put in people's minds that HIV was a disease of gay men, which did not tell the whole story. And, but unfortunately, it put it in people's minds and it's been very hard to sort of change people's minds that it is not the whole story. And I, I don't want to say it did a disservice because that would be an incorrect way to, to, to represent that truth. Um, but it's just been, it's been hard to, to fill in the rest of the story as we have moved along. Because as soon as you step out of the industrialized nations, and even within, like the United States, for example, my case as a case in point, it is totally a different story. But it's the same thing if you see, um, even within the AIDS pandemic, if uh, a family is dealing with a sick person who has AIDS and they're in a rural community and the person is sick, they have diarrhea because of AIDS, somebody needs to get water from the river because they don't happen to have a well that is working. It's generally the girl child who's the first one who's taken out of school to help with the chores. So she's not getting an education. So immediately, the gender inequities are hardest hit for the girl. And all of these things play into the reasons why the, the females in a family suffer in a different way. And it plays into women not being represented in the story because they're just never represented in the story. 
Um, and I and I think that also women's voices are not amplified as much as they should be and could be. And I think so, go ahead. No, no, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I just think that there's there's a million dynamics to it. Um but I think it really comes down to the gender inequities across the board, not that are specific to HIV. Yeah. I see this very much as an and and. I, I think um, the treatment activists, you know, the, the early activism that Peter Staley and Greg Gonzalez and uh, John Campbell in the UK did really forced the matter to the table. And then people like Peter and um, uh, and Greg Gonzalez were able to work with the pharmaceutical and work direct the pharmaceutical companies on how to incorporate people living with HIV. You and many others in the global network of people with HIV, I think you took, um, and, and I, I hope Peter will forgive me for saying this, but I think <laughs> you took the harder route. You decided to work with the international community, with the multilateral systems that were consistently excluding, deliberately discriminating against people with HIV. You got yourself very involved with the newly formed UNAIDS, Joint UN Programme on AIDS. And in fact, you were the first openly HIV positive employee at UNAIDS. Can you talk a bit about that? I don't like to do anything the easy way. Um, it was an honor. Um, I also had no idea what I was getting into. And to be fair, none of us who were the first of any of our jobs at UNAIDS really knew what we were getting into because we were all setting up the program. Um, and I had all of these grand notions in my mind that I was going to go and set up um, the work. And I was, my official title was as the NGO liaison, meaning that I was the interface between the non-governmental organizations working on HIV around the world, of which there are approximately 70,000 gazillion in every country, um, and UNAIDS. Um, but I also saw myself as the link between people living with HIV and UNAIDS. And that was not my official title, but to me, that was really the important thing and that I would be able to speak and advocate on behalf of my community. Um, and then I got there and to my absolute shock, I was basically silenced. I was allowed to do my work. And internally, I spoke in meetings, um, but I spoke on behalf of the organization in the years that I worked there a total of two times. Once was at the, well, no, that's not true. Three times, three times. I spoke once at a conference um, uh, about women living with HIV, which Noreen Kaliba actually sort of said, I can't do this why don't you go in my place? Martina, before we go on, let's let's just remind our viewers and listeners who Noreen is. Oh. Absolute powerhouse. But who was she? Is she? <laughs> is she? Is she? 
very much is she. Noreen Kaliba is the woman who started the first um, non-governmental organization on HIV AIDS in Africa, in Uganda, called TASO, the AIDS service organization. She is just an extraordinary human being. You need a whole show just for her. Noreen Kaliba is one of the most amazing people on the planet. And I had the good fortune to work with her. So before and during, and then also after my time at UNAIDS. And so yeah. your second speaking yes. opportunity for UNAIDS. They uh, allowed me to go and speak at a World AIDS Day event at the UN Secretariat that was organized by AMFAR. It was a special session of the uh, General Assembly. And um, I spoke about HIV in the UN workplace. And um, it was a very sort of fancy schmancy event. Uh, but I'm, I feel like it fell on deaf ears. I don't really know that people paid a lot of attention. And then the last event was um, just a few months before I left UNAIDS. I went to a conference in um, the Czech Republic. And um, again, it was, it was a wonderful conference, but it was, it, it was just me being there as a representative of UNAIDS, but mostly as a person living with HIV. Mm. In your book, you, um, My Unseen Life. You, Un you, you, unexpected Life. Unseen would be... Unseen would Unexpected be a good life. And I'll make sure I correct that throughout, Martina. Sorry. I don't know why. I, do you know why I'm saying that? Precisely because of the way the UN treated you. Um, I was two years behind you and um, I managed to get into UNAIDS actually, uh, well, two years after you left in, in, in 2000. And um, it was quite a shock to find that you weren't there, uh, I might add. Um, But it was very curious to us on the outside that you didn't play more of a visible role. And um, why do you think that was? Because certainly leadership in the form of Peter Piot um, and others were, we have to embrace, uplift, and actually be told what to do by people living with HIV but it never really translated into cross-board action. Um, I don't really know the answer to that, to be completely honest. And I, I don't know if I was sort of um, an easy person to have on staff because it was easy to check the box and I would not be offensive to anybody in any way or some, I don't know. Uh, but that they didn't actually want to hear what I had to say. And I know that I was very much a troublemaker inside of UNAIDS. I drove them bonkers with my constantly, constantly, constantly saying, why are we not training our own staff? And um, they're like, well, we're UNAIDS. And I said, exactly, we're UNAIDS. How can we not be training our own 
personnel about HIV and AIDS. Yes, some people are researchers, some people are doctors, and you know, but that doesn't mean that every single person knows everything about you and AIDS. And yet we all go home as personnel of you and AIDS. And if we go to a dinner party with our friends and somebody wants to ask us a question about it, how are we supposed to have all of the answers? You know, it's, it's not fair. And that drove them nuts. Well, and of course, we might go home after work. Some of us might be single, some of us might not be single, but still, everyone is human, duh. Everyone does, has a personal life. So they sort of need to know for their own protection, as it were. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can I ask you one more thing uh, about the book before we get into your, your sort of post-UNAIDS career? Um, you take some time off afterwards. Um, you explore art. You open a gallery in a, uh, a, a suburb of Geneva, Carouge, which, by the way, I spent a lot of time in. And I have been to the gallery and seen some of the art that you refer to in your book. Um, but you talk a lot about abusive relationships. And I hope you don't mind my asking this. And I think this is important for understanding your career. You, you talk about your family uh, and you talk about your, your first husband. And, and I just want to know why it is important that you, you talk about this in an unexpected life. I think that it is important to talk about it because, like it or not, it is, um, those relationships have shaped who I am. And having had experiences with abusive relationships at a young age shaped me to understand that, uh, erroneously shaped me to believe that those were acceptable relationships as I got older because they felt comfortable. They were never okay, but they sort of were what I was used to. And so I felt like, oh, this feels, this feels familiar. And I repeated the patterns and I repeated the patterns with my now, long ago, now ex-husband. And I think that that's an important thing to bring into the story. And until I was able to see that and truly, truly understand what I was doing, what my role was in that, because of course, you know, there, there are two people in a relationship, no matter what. And until I understood my own role in that, um, I couldn't break the pattern and get into a healthier relationship, primarily a healthy relationship with myself, and to understand that I didn't have to have those abusive and relationships. And I think that's important because as we do our work in promoting a comprehensive response to HIV, how on earth could we do that if we are not having, mm, let's say, comprehensive open lives ourselves. And so I know that that story resonates with a lot, a lot of people who have been involved in the UN more broadly. I, I want to change chat tack a little bit mm -hmm. and take us to 2000 and the Security Council Resolution 1308. 
Um, that was a resolution um, that the uh, late Ambassador Holbrook, you, then US Ambassador to the UN, and Executive Director of UNAIDS, Peter Piot, crafted, mm, conspired together. But it basically set the stage for HIV to be a security issue. And it has changed your life and my life. Could you talk a bit about Security Council Resolution 1308? 1308 and then I think it was 1893 that followed are two pieces of what would be the equivalent of sort of legislature in the real world um, that basically set out that just as I was talking about how um, like in the UN workplace or in UNAIDS, I was advocating that we have to train our own staff. It's sort of a similar kind of document, but specifically for peacekeeping, that we have to have a certain set of parameters that protect the people we are there to serve and to see um, the damage that HIV can do in the context of war. And um, I'm completely blanking on all of the language of 1308. Well, which is what you tend to do when you're a staffer sitting at the back of UN meetings. I know this experience all too well, and I know there are going to people who are going to slap me for having said that. Um, but your job ended up being having to provide HIV education to peacekeepers and then UN staff. Um, Richard Holbrook, Ambassador Holbrook, was absolutely convinced that peacekeepers were spreading HIV with abandon around the world, with some but not really very strong evidence of that. Um, and he also wanted uh, employers, particularly miner, mining firms and soft drink manufacturers and bottlers across Africa, to test and test decidedly. And so you go forth and test the UN and the peacekeepers. I go forth and engage the, engage the private sector. Um, I've got to be honest, I think yours was a harder job than mine. Could you share from my unexpected life some of the experiences, perhaps shocking ones, if you don't mind my asking for those, where you can just see how dumb-headed and stupid some <laughs> colleagues in the UN were when it came to HIV. Yeah, on that note of peacekeepers, there was one moment where I was doing a training, um, actually with Kofi Annan and his senior most staff, and we brought up this issue of, of HIV testing. And as a rule, the United Nations does not, or at least when I left, I don't think it has changed, does not uh, test staff for HIV. And we do not test um, peacekeepers for HIV. And the reason being is that um, while they serve under our umbrella, while they are peacekeepers, they still belong to their countries. So once they go back, we have no guarantee of what happens. So if we test them for HIV and they get sent home, for example, we don't know what their government will do because they may have very different rules. Um, and during this training, 
the then head of peacekeeping sort of lost his mind and said, but why, why don't we test them? We should test them. And it, all chaos just completely broke out. <laughs> and the meeting was uh, a free-for-all, basically. And I had to sort of <laughs> rein everybody back in and explain that what I just said, that you know we can't guarantee the safety of people's lives if we test them without any protection mechanisms in place for after the results of that test. Um, that was one moment. And I think in the end, that conversation, it worked. So I think the then head of peacekeeping understood. I think that was a seminal moment, if you don't mind the, the pun, um, <laughs> Martina, because um, Richard Holbrook referred to that moment a lot. He was very close with the head of the Department of Peacekeepers that you refer to. And there was a sense that you get people tested, you put the positive ones over here and put them on treatment, and then you give the negative ones condoms. Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt, epidemic over. And um, I think that as people look at you know me setting up the Global Business Coalition with Holbrook straight after 9-11, we only recruited, I guess, about 150 companies. Maybe that was a success, maybe it wasn't. But the real success, the real achievement in inverted commas for me was making sure that he didn't promote and argue and demand that these companies implement mandatory testing, which would have been dangerous and horrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in your book... You, in your last couple of chapters, point to a future that we are living in now, a future of pandemics. And I'd love it if we can talk just a little bit about COVID-19. Um, I will strongly urge everybody to get my unexpected life. I think the final, the final chapter particularly should be um, required reading for pretty much everyone. I've not seen a clearer description of what it is to live with COVID, uh, not seen a clearer description of how confusing the various testing approaches are. Um, and as we have seen with other Shot in the Arm podcast guests, I'm thinking of Robin Gorner particularly, you know, you can be really sick and then get a negative COVID test. And this is still all very, very complicated. So, Without spoiling the plot, um, you choose to describe in the book very clearly how and when you feel you were infected with SARS-CoV-2. Mm -hmm. But you and I have both worked very hard in our HIV work to say, you've got HIV. The when and how you got it is your business. So... Is there a dichotomy there? Is there a difference in approach that you've, you're taking? You know, that's, a, that's an excellent question that nobody has asked yet. Uh, I think that perhaps I, I did that in a sense because I have spent 30 years of people sort of like, hmm, how did you get HIV? And I felt this shame for so long 
that maybe I even inadvertently or, or not even realizing it felt I had to explain how I thought I got COVID. I, I hadn't even really put that together. Um, but I, I also feel like there's also, um, it's also important to explain how easy it is to get COVID. It is not that easy to get HIV. Um, I, again, spoiler alerts, I got COVID early on, probably in a pharmacy, and it was a teeny tiny little pharmacy. This is not a big Walgreens, CVS kind of situation. This is a little mom and pop, very small space. And this was early March, well, mid-March, late March of 2020. Um, Nobody knew what the exact protocols were at that point. You're not going to get HIV in that kind of a setting unless you're having unprotected sex in your pharmacy. Probably not going to happen. I don't know. I don't know about your pharmacy. I'm guessing that's not a real risk factor. However, COVID, absolutely, it's a total risk factor because pharmacies have sick people, right? That's how it spread, through droplets. And so I think that that was probably why I felt uh, compelled to explain how I got it, that it was really easy to get, especially when we didn't really know how to protect ourselves. Um, I'd like to talk to you a bit about mandates and get your thoughts on mandates. We think of them now in terms of vaccines for COVID, but but in a sense, also COVID testing too. And I, I was talking to one of our former colleagues, Panima Mane, who is a board member of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, which is our partner on this podcast. And, and we both thought of a question we wanted to ask you, um, really around how COVID should be thought of. Um, <clears throat> is testing and vaccination say, closer to the MMR, children's vaccines, than HIV? So in other words, are there limitations to what we can learn from HIV in the context of mandates? I think, you know, sort of like the exposure factor of your mom-and-pop pharmacy, um, I would venture to say that every person is implicated in this pandemic in a very different way than in the HIV pandemic. Um, My personal feeling is that everyone should be vaccinated who can be vaccinated. And with the testing, the same thing. If it, it would be appropriate for everybody to be tested when the circumstances call for it. And, um, I believe in public health, but it only works if everybody participates. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I... I, No, it does. I mean, the challenge for me with mandates is that, as we've learned with HIV, it drives things underground. And we've seen that in China, in Southeast Asia. We've Hell, we've seen it here with people selling false vaccination cards. And and so it's something I struggle with. I don't know there is a... A clear answer. Um, I, I would point 
people to another colleague of ours, Heidi Larson, who thinks a lot about this. Um, and the vaccineconfidencecenter.org is a really good place to explore these issues. So, Martina, if we could shift gears a little bit again, a bit of a cheeky question. We've spent our lives educating people about HIV and particularly how to protect themselves against infection. Has PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, has that made us redundant? It may have made you redundant, um, but I don't think it has made me redundant because to the best of my knowledge, PrEP has not been tested on people assigned female at birth. So uh, there's still work to be done. I wish we could say that it could make me redundant. And I sure, sure, sure wish we could say that there was a vaccine that could make us all redundant. But I don't think we're, we're there yet. I, I agree. And, <laughs> and I think the need for investment in PrEP research in girls and women, uh, as you described it, women born with, um, let me get this right. I'll, I'll say this again, Martina. Women, women born, you used the term women born with... People assigned... Gen uh, people assigned female gender at birth. People assigned female gender at birth. Do you know, at the San Francisco Community Health Center, we call it people with uteruses. Um, and, you know, that works. yeah. And, and imagine, um, you know, the need to get um, HPV vaccines. Um, to a clientele of trans women, mostly trans women, and failing on the uh, the uh, metrics set by the state and the CDC to achieve that. But anyway, so I, I do think that there is, I'm absolutely with you, there is so much more we need to do for people who assigned, were assigned women's gender at birth, people with uteruses in in pre-exposure prophylaxis. Yep. I hope the long-acting injectables and the microbicides will, will provide additional options, but we've got a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. There is one question that I didn't ask, I, I really think is important. It's an experience that you and I have shared as we have traveled the world. And it's one of discomfort um, as we... We come into communities, we are treated and we're treated with kid gloves, we stay at the best hotels, we are escorted by cars, sometimes with security details. And, and it's something that you raise in the book, um, My Unexpected Life. You raise the sense that this is white privilege and how on earth are we to go into and work with communities then to explain about something like HIV. How did you reconcile that? When I was doing my training to educate UN personnel on HIV within the workplace, um, that work was a little bit easier because there I was another colleague who happened to be... Um, 
a white woman. And so initially I walked into the room as a white woman from New York, clearly a woman with so much privilege. But by the time I started the, the training and left, I was a colleague who had HIV and I was a little bit more like everybody else. That said, um, I was constantly having to qualify that I understood that I still went back to New York and I had access to excellent insurance and an access to any treatment that I wanted or needed um, and that I did not have to deal with the intersectionality of being a person with HIV and being a person of color and maybe being um, uh, LGBTQ, any of the other identities that so many people are dealing with, I didn't have to deal with all of that. And so I think that without being a Karen, I, <laughs> I was able to at least acknowledge that those complexities exist. And um, I hope that that was enough. I don't, it probably not, probably not, but, um, but at least to raise the, the points that I know there's so much more that I don't, I, I can't explain. I have never experienced. I will never know what they're going through because that's not my lived truth. Um, and to recognize it, that I don't know. I don't know what they're going through. I can't know. Um, but that I acknowledge that there's a lot of stuff that other people deal with that I don't deal with. Um, and to also say that, you know, when I go back, I also carry the truth that they share with me back to our headquarters. And I deliver that and say, all right, so I went on this training and these are the, the blah, blah, blah statistics that you asked me to get. But also I want to tell you about so-and-so who is um, <clears throat> facing a dilemma because she can only claim five children on her insurance but she's actually caring for 12 because her siblings have died. And now she doesn't know what to do because seven of them, of those children, have HIV, but her children don't. So does she take her own children off the insurance and put the other kids on? And then what about the savings? She can't now send her children to higher education because she has to take care of all these kids. You know, and I next would explain situations like that to our human resources departments and say, this is why we need to have more for our own staff. And they would fight with me and say, well, you know, we're UNICEF, we take care of children. Maybe you should work with the HIV program. And I'm like, that's not what they do. They work with people who do not work for UNICEF. And we would have these arguments and I would be a pain in their side and I would keep fighting with them and keep fighting with them and eventually little things would change but um, that's how I tried to deal with it to recognize that I knew that I had a different set of circumstances that I lived with but also to make sure that I understood it was on me to take 
whatever I could back to try and change it because I couldn't just say, oh, I'm so sorry, you have a different situation than I do and good luck, then walk away. It's my job to try and fix it because if I don't, then I'm part of the problem. I, I agree. And, and I think we don't know. We are making this up as we, we go along, mostly, I hope, with good intentions. But I think it is very clear from your book, and I, I would really recommend people who are interested in understanding and sort of breaking down the concept of white privilege, to look at those experiences that you describe, because they are humbling. They are about learning as much as teaching. And without a shadow of a doubt, in communities that have high prevalence, and we're talking of you know, HIV prevalence in the adult community of over 15%, 30%, Botswana, it was higher. You really need to have somebody you can trust to share information that you are going to use. And we need to be able to dis distangle that, detangle that mm -hmm. from the idea of the very pretty white woman coming in or the uh, slightly batty white Englishman coming in in his suit <laughs> to tell them what's going on. I mean, my God, they've had that for centuries. And, you know, right. Yep. But I think what you describe in your book is really powerful and important and needs to be needs to be read by people who want to engage and be in solidarity with people around the world. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I know we're getting to time, but but there is one other question I wanted to ask you about your experience at the UN. We've talked about the boneheaded stupidity of many of our colleagues, <laughs> but there's another side to it. You spoke about meeting a colleague in Algiers after the bombing of the UN there and her experience of being, as a result of being caught up in that blast, getting, uh, getting seizures, getting epilepsy. Uh, I'm thinking of David Nabarro, who after the bombing of the UN in Baghdad, was there literally on the ground providing, um, you know, triage care to UN colleagues, many of whom, many of whom we know. Why is the UN ultimately so important, Martina? You know, I, I jokingly refer to having worked with the squishy underbelly of the United Nations because it's this gigantic beast. But I truly, truly believe that the world is a better place with the UN than without the UN. Because at the end of the day, as big and unwieldy as it is, the UN is made up of individuals. And I, I personally, having met so many of those individuals, I believe that the vast majority of them are good people and that they are drawn to work for the UN um, because they also believe that the UN has a good mandate and that um, ultimately they're trying to make the world a better place and that the, the goal 
is that we work together and that we share our knowledge across nations and that maybe somebody here needs to know how to do something and somebody there knows how to do it. So we can bring them together. They can share knowledge and both learn something from the experience and everybody benefits. That's, that's the very simplistic goal of how this works. And despite all of the blah, 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 we hear about on TV, on the ground, that happens a lot. And that is why I believe that the UN matters, why it still needs to exist, um, why it still actually does work. And that is because the UN is made up of individuals who are extraordinary. And I applaud the fact that they still get up and go to work all the time. So, Martina, I, I completely agree. The UN is full of really extraordinary people, but they, they are extraordinary because they know at the right time how to take care of themselves. And there are points in your book where you clearly indicate that your body, your mind, your spirit is telling you how to take care of yourself. And in this era of pandemics, in the last two years of COVID-19, how have you kept sane? Uh, what music have you listened to? What shows have you binge-watched? What, what books have you read? So um, since leaving the UN and after UNICEF, I actually did another year uh, with peacekeeping, but that's not in the book. That's another story. Um, I have become a professor. I teach writing and um, critical reading. So most of my reading are student essays. So you, nobody else is going to get to read those. I am privileged to read those. Uh, but it also precludes me from doing a lot of other reading as much as I would like. But I have, um, what I have been reading are almost exclusively books written by, um, I would say, uh, not, not modern, that's not the contemporary black authors. So Ibrahim X. Kendi, um, Ijima Oluo, um, I, 400 Souls, brilliant, brilliant compilation. Um, I have Jocelyn Nicole Johnson, um, my Monticello is next on my list. Um, I'm reading Someone's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford, somebody's daughter, Ashley C. Ford, with my class right now. Um, that's her memoir. Um, and then binge-watching, I binge-watched Grey's Anatomy and SVU. <laughs> Well, over here, it's the Great British Bake Off. So, I, you know, nothing you can say can be more embarrassing than... Ted Lasso. But, oh. you know, I, I love Ted Lasso. Yeah. I'm interested about your the range of books and literature that you're reading. I'm really, I'm really not very good at this. I'm very sort of in-depth in a very, very few authors. And so I would do a call out to Margaret Atwood's latest uh, collection of poems, Dearly, 
um, that I just cannot put down. I think she is the greatest writer in the English language at the moment. And who can bring in um, childhood memories and zombies into a poem? I think it's extraordinary. <laughs> She's amazing. Agree. Agree. So my last question, and I have to ask this, I ask this of everyone, uh, what's your favourite Pet Shop Boys song? Oh, my goodness. You got me on the spot here. Is it the Pet Shop Boys or... That's not Pet Shop Boys, is it? No, that's Aha. Uh -huh. But that'll uh -huh. do. They're Norwegian. That's fine. Yeah. It, it's funny. I, so I'm going to do a shameless plug for a short podcast series that I'll be releasing in audio podcast uh, series I'll be releasing uh, in mid-December about my two years working directly for Richard Holbrook, setting up the Global Business Coalition. And one of the things that we had to do was uh, organize a gala event. And this was for a Brit, a European Brit, a total culture clash. And as we were looking at musicians to suggest, uh, I had suggested the Pet Shop Boys, which sank faster than the Titanic. And there were problems with one artist. And he looked at me and he said, uh-uh, we are not having the hamster club. And <laughs> you just knew he was referring to the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> oh, no. I did love the Pet, Boy, Pet Shop Boys, but I, I, you know, I'm not quick on my feet these days. Not a problem. <laughs> well, look. I blame uh, COVID, by the way. Yeah. But, um, Martina, this has been a, a wonderful, fabulous, <laughs> and really important journey around um, my unexpected life, even if I do call it my unseen life, my unexpected life. <laughs> I like my unseen life. That's good, too. <laughs> And so I just want to say a huge thank you. And, you know, thank Martina, you. you are a shot in the arm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you to Martina Clark. Thanks to Sarah Anderson and colleagues at the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Thanks to Eric Sperra, our director and producer. And thanks also to Troy Sperra, our digital producer. Finally, thanks to you. Don't forget to hit like and subscribe on whatever podcast or video platform you are enjoying this content on. And all the more this World AIDS Day week. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone. <laughs>